Cornelius Minor likes to ask himself three key questions. One, what are his students trying to tell him? Two, what are they really trying to tell him through their actions and their silences? And three, what do these students, who he worries he might not be reaching, all have in common? I'm Jeannie Phillips and welcome to another episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about books by, for, and with educators. Today I'm with middle school equity scholar Kathleen Vinegar, and we'll be talking about We Got This, Equity, Access, and the Quest to Be, Who Our Students Need Us to Be, by Cornelius Minor. We'll unpack some of our own biases and ask you to think about yours, as well as look at the shiny, shiny power of disruption. And remember, watch your language. Let's chat. Um, so let's turn to Cornelius Miner's book, We Got This, and um, the subtitle is Equity, Access, and the Quest to Be Who Our Students Need Us to Be. And um, Miner begins the book with this powerful notion, and I'm going to quote him, if we are not doing equity, then we are not doing education. Can you start by just telling us what this means to you? Absolutely. I mean, to me, that's sort of the the mantra that I live by with my work. Um, and it wasn't always the mantra um, that guided my work. But over the past um, decade, my work has really um, become about um, equity. I truly feel that if if our syst- if the systems that we have in place to educate, um, particularly young adolescents, since that's my focus, um, if they're not doing their job of supporting every single adolescent, then I don't think we're doing our job to support any adolescent. And so I think um, the equity lens is sort of, to me, the most important lens through which we can look at um, and measure success in education. That's really our mandate as public educators, right? Absolutely. It's not just to teach the kids who are easy to teach. That's it's right. to teach all the kids. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that um, Miner um, gives us some really strategic tools to do that. Um, and he says this other thing that, that really um, touched me. Um, he says, labels can't cover our full humanity. And um, on page 10, he says, we need tools to build a bridge between the discourse of our profession and the children that populate the communities that we serve. And it seems to me that he gives us some of those tools mm-hmm. um, to, to build that bridge between our profession and specific kids, the specific mm-hmm. kids that show up in our schools. So what I love about um, Miner's book in general is his focus is on listening to students and really what that means. Um, how it's more of a, a true authentic listening and a listening to um, not just what students are saying, but what their actions are telling us, what their silences are telling us. It's really paying attention to who they are as um, whole human beings and not just as even learners or students in our classrooms. Um, his tool on page 22, in particular, he shares the listening to kids organizer. Um, and I find it to be such a powerful tool in terms of thinking about not just kids in general, because I feel like sometimes, um, I know when I was taught to plan my instruction, it was really a focus on what are the developmental needs of this age group, which is certainly significant and important, 
but it leaves students out who may not be, you know, typical or, or you know, um, who may not be fit into the categories of development that we typically use in classrooms. In fact, Minor gives us a caution, doesn't he? Yes. He says, um, you know, it's, it's sort of a don't judge a book by the cover kind mm-hmm. of caution, but he says be careful of the archetypes and stereotypes we apply to, to kids, that those shortcuts, yeah. while they feel like we need them in order to do our jobs, actually get in the way of us really knowing students well. Absolutely. I say that to my pre-service teachers here. I say, you know, if there's one thing that's going to, you know, really give me pause about my comfortability recommending you for a teaching license, it's if you are teaching to blank rooms or rooms of who you think should be in the room, of who you want to be in the room, as opposed to me feeling really comfortable that you are teaching the actual individual human beings in the space where you are in. To me, that's that's the key to instruction. That seems to be the key to um, meaningful implementation of Act 77, too, mm-hmm. right? That we really Absolutely. know our students. It also seems to me like if we're not listening deeply to students, if we're not knowing students well, that's where our implicit bias can really show up. Absolutely. And, and to me, it's the difference between um, asking students and listening to students, because I think we have mechanisms in schools where we, we attempt to solicit student feedback and student thoughts, but I don't know how much of that their thoughts and their feedback actually manifest themselves into the transformation of our schools. And so the way that he really operationalizes that concept of listening to me is really about, again, that authentic piece of thinking about individual students with every sort of decision that you make, that you make in the classroom. Um, So the way he frames his organizer is it asks us to think about, um, you know, four, you know, he, he uses four different students um, each time he's, he's planning a piece. And he thinks about what, um, what those four students um, need in relation to um, what, are they te- what are they trying to tell him? What are they trying to tell him again through their actions, their silences? And he takes some notes about each of the students. And then he actually takes it a step further, which I really appreciate, is he starts thinking about what do these students who I may not be reaching, what do they have in common? And to me, that's what it really, it really helps get at sort of looking at those biases, those stereotypes. Are there sort of components of those students' identities that I may be completely missing, um, yet um, that might be a pattern in my behavior as a teacher. Um, thinking about what are the um, what are the ways to engage these students, both as this group of students that I'm missing, as well as individuals. And then um, it asks you to think about practices that you're going to implement and try. And I love the way that he approaches his teaching as a constant action research project, right? That everything that he does, he acknowledges he doesn't know whether it's going to work, right? It it might work. It might not. It might work for this student. It might work. It might not work for another one. And so his graphic organizers are a way for him to keep track 
of what's working and what's not working in the way that sort of any um, social scientist would um, study any environment in which they're working. And so to me, it really positions the educator as, um, as one of the most significant educational researchers. Uh, that makes me think of Jamila Liscott said this thing that really resonated with me. She said, perhaps it's not your students who are disengaged, but your pedagogy that's disengaging. In a lot of ways, what Cornelius Minor is doing is putting the ball in our court as educators and saying, okay, you've got disengaged kids. What are you going to do about it? How can you think differently? How can your instruction be more responsive to their needs so they engage? Miner is specific about asking us to disrupt the systems in classrooms. He says on page 31, systems don't change just because we identify them, they change because we disrupt them. And he particularly points out the way in which education can be a little colonialist. And I wondered if you wanted to think out loud about that. Sure, absolutely. No, he he references in the book that um, when he talks about the colonizing aspect of education that um, it is it's an act of violence to students if we do not if we do not um, think about their humanity right so when we think about colonization and we think about this notion of coming in assuming that we have the answers that we can do things better that the way that we view the world is the way to view the world and if we approach education in that way and the our students are left out of that conversation and left out of that equation then in essence we're erasing them as he references and not only um he talks very specifically about the students, but I'd argue we're also erasing the communities in which they these students live and exist. If we're not, um, if we're not um, centering our education in what those communities and therefore what those students value. Yeah, he has this quote that I think is really powerful. He says, "Colonialism has everything to teach and nothing to learn," and um, it strongly reminded me of. Um, the native Hawaiian word for teach mm. also means learn. Oh. It's a reciprocal term, right, in that the same word means both to teach and to learn because the culture believes that teaching and learning go hand in hand. And if we, in our classrooms, pretend we're the only one with something to teach and students' job is only to learn, that's a kind of colonialism, right? That's We're missing out on the richness that comes from students' lived experience. Absolutely, and to me it's sort of the center of everything about equity work. I feel like, um, you know, although I'm on this, I call it an, a permanent equity journey because I feel like I could never define myself as an expert in equity because I don't, I don't believe you can be an expert in equity. To me, equity is all about that reciprocal learning that takes place. Every time I engage in a conversation with someone um, around equity, regardless of sort of how they feel about it or what their perspective is or their background or their level of comfortability with it, my notion changes and grows and shifts. And, and I see that as central to being an educator is to view your work with students that way. Every conversation that you have with a student or a parent or a community member 
um, should be shifting and changing the way that you think about um, supporting that community and that student and um, creating a space for their um, values and perspectives to be at the center of the work. It's so interesting because teaching is one of the few professions where we experience what it's like to be in a classroom deeply as students. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard not to carry forward that notion of what we experienced. And yet good teaching is a constant inquiry. We're constantly inquiring into how to get better, what our student needs needs are, who our students are. And um, Minor reminds us that just because we work with young people, it doesn't mean that their understandings of the world aren't valid or that they don't have things to teach us about how the world works and um, what life is like in it. Absolutely. You know, every every human experiences the world completely differently. And therefore, I feel like every opportunity you have to get to know a human in this world is another opportunity to sort of open you know, open your own um, uh, perspectives on what what the world has to offer and the way that we can, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, that we can sort of continue to hopefully make it a, a better place. And I feel like the only way you can do that is is to, again, going back to minor, is to listen. Listen to the people around you. Yeah, he even says that we need to look beneath the surface of the behavior. My, do I wish I had this book when I was a brand new educator. Oh, I say that all the time. Um, I, I love on page 80, he says, kids are simply trying to cope with all the input that school, home, hormones, and the world are handing them. And um, he's got this spectacular tool on page um, 38 and 39 called the Thinking About My Kids, Thinking About the Kids in My Classroom Graphic Organizer. Um, I wonder if you could unpack how you might use this uh, with your um, in pre-service teachers or with teachers that are in the classroom. Sure, absolutely. I'm actually going to be using it with um, college professors uh, next week. I'm working on a workshop um, on our campus for faculty, and the title of the workshop is Teaching the Students You Have and Not the Students You Want. And the the theme of the workshop really came out of this notion of um, all of us as educators had our own educational experiences and largely those educational experiences sort of drive the way that we then teach you know what worked for us tends to be for the most part what the strategies we employ in our classroom um, yet the reality of it is, is we're not teaching a classroom of us. You know, we don't have, you know, 20 versions of ourselves sitting in front of us, but instead we have 20 completely, um, completely uh, unique individuals in front of us. And so um, the thinking about the kids in my classroom protocol allows us to really think about the kids. And for me, I often think about it from the perspective of, um, he poses it as, who are the children that I worry about? And in many cases, the children that I worry about, or even if I think about my pre-service teachers, the pre-service teachers that I worry about are often the ones whose experiences I understand the least. Because I don't, and because of that, I don't always know the best way to 
to support them or reach them or help them achieve, in my case, their goal of being a teacher. But in a middle grades classroom, you know, it's it's um, whatever the goals are that our students have. And so he, he um, proposes this notion of um, listing those students and then classifying them into groups of what kind of worrying are we doing about them? Why are we worrying about them? Um, and so again, I, um, I often have my pre-service teachers use graphic organizers such as this one when they're learning how to pl plan lessons for the first time. And what that does is when they're in practicum experiences, it allows them to say, who are the students that you know and understand uh, and feel like you have a sense of understanding and who are the ones that you don't? And so again, he uses worry. Sometimes I use it differently in terms of who we feel like we know and, and don't know yet and why is it that we don't know them. Um, in terms of thinking about um, what is it. And so in his graphic organizer, he talks about, for example, you may have students that are chronically late or absent, or the kids that never seem to get it, or the kids that talk all the time. And then he uses his action research um, model to then think about, well, what are strategies that I can use to help um, these students? And what's really powerful about this process is oftentimes it forces you to take a strength-based instead of a deficit-based perspective with your students. That is so powerful. And um, I, you are very kind to say the students you worry about, or um, he uses the term worry, and, and, and you used another term. I think about this in terms of who are the students that drive me crazy? Yeah, right? absolutely. Like, we know as teachers that sometimes we have learners that for whatever reason we find particularly frustrating mm -hmm. and what frustrates us about them. And then he asks us to think about what, what would help them be successful and then turn the page over and here comes the real powerful. Mm -hmm. What are the barriers or obstacles and um, how might I remove those? obstacles so that they can be successful and I love that again this puts the ball in our court what can we do to eliminate the barriers and it forces us to have empathy for kids that maybe had just been driving us a little bonkers absolutely and sometimes I think it forces us to make the realization that we are the barrier yes. which is really hard to um, to come to as a teacher when you know that you're putting your heart and soul into your work, but sometimes you're the barrier, you're an unintentional barrier to your student's success. And I think that can be a really powerful um, uncovering that a graphic organizer such as this one can help you, can help you get to. It took me a long time as a new teacher to realize that, um, that when I raised my voice, it got high and squeaky and sounded stressed. I think we have the same voice. And yes. kids, kids picked up on that, and mm -hmm. um, and they picked up on that energy, right? And that the most impactful thing I could do was whisper. Yeah. And um, it took me too long to figure that out. Um, and so something like this, I think, could have helped me got to even deeper truths about things that I was doing that got in the way of student learning and how I might um, 
uh, eliminate those barriers and become a better educator. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had a pre-service teacher recently um, plan a lesson and I had him use a graphic organizer similar to this in terms of thinking about his students before he planned it. And um, well, first I had him plan a lesson before it. And then I had him relook at that lesson using a graphic organizer such as this one. And what he realized after um, diving into his students and really focusing on some specific students and planning the lesson was that his lesson took out the uh, mode of um, the mode of learning that the majority of his students identified as needing to be successful. And so he was able to revamp the entire lesson. And when I asked him afterwards, you know, what worked, what didn't work, he said the most successful part of my lesson and the part that we carried on twice as long is the part that came out of what I had written in my graphic organizers my students need. So it's such a powerful, um, powerful example of how it really does make a difference. Yeah. He, and it, and it could be really concrete. I need to try building movement and talk breaks into the class mm-hmm. is one example he gives on page 42, or I can find ways to utilize their voices in the classroom. That's really powerful instead of just expecting them to be quiet and movement free. Um, I can work to eliminate the expectations that kids need to master a thing on the first try by creating lots of low-stake opportunities to try things. These are powerful strategies for any educator, and the fact that he's identifying these because of student needs is really, um, I don't know, gives me chills a little bit. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I love that you're going to be using this same strategy with your um, teacher educators. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It I well I think as teacher educators it's extremely important for us to model the sorts of teaching that we want to see in our classrooms. And as soon as teaching came out of my mouth, I was like it's not quite teaching. It's it's about the type of people, the type of educators we want our students to be are the type of of uh, teacher educators that that we need to be. Um, I still lesson plan as a teacher educator, and I still revise lesson plans. I still take notes on my lesson plans. I'm actually going to use some of um, Miner's graphic organizers to help me because then it allows me to show my students and say, um, here's what I was thinking I was going to do with you all first. Here's what here's my um, what I learned when I completed this graphic organizer around my own teaching and you all as learners and here's what it looks like now how would you have responded to each of these lessons and I think the more we can be intentional about that I think the better um, our our future teachers will be that's just such a powerful way to make your practice public yeah I think we have to I think we have to. I think both as, you know, I'm using the example of teacher educators, but actually I think educators need to make their practice visible to their students. Um, I think particularly in our Act 77 context, if we want our students to become expert learners, we have to be transparent about the decisions we are making as educators that... um, influence their learning. Yeah. 
And so that leads me to this next concept that I think Minor really gets at to gets to in the book, which is power. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, there's this wonderful quote from page eighty one that I just adore. I keep quoting because he's mm-hmm. his writing is so powerful. Listening to me is not the extent of the learning that kids can do in the classroom. Learning is something that kids have to elect to do, and I, as teacher, can make it easier or harder. That's so powerful, and the idea that um, when we when we are just asking kids to listen to us, that's a singular modality that doesn't meet their needs, but also it makes us think about the reciprocal notion of listening to them and listening, like the back and forth of listening. And so I wondered if you wanted to talk at all about um, his idea of creating a space where kids feel safe means of creating a space where they share power with us, but it doesn't mean a, a space that's out of control. Right, absolutely. I think in some ways it's a space that is is co-developed and, and co-constructed in terms of, again, it goes back to that transparency as educators, sort of letting students know about the types of decisions that they need to make as educators in order for everybody in the classroom to feel safe and respected, but then come use the voices of the students to decide what that actually looks like, right? So posing those sorts of questions to students around, um, you know, how do we want to go about um, exploring this guiding question? Or what are the different ways that you can demonstrate your understanding of this, you know, whatever the concept is that, that, you're, that you're teaching? Um, what are the modalities? Um, and even opening it up to do we all need to be doing it the same way, the sa- at the same time, all the time? Right, finding those those different ways for students to sort of have that that ownership and be able to advocate for what's going to work for them. Right, so building in opportunities for voice and choice, whether that's negotiated curriculum or um, having kids decide what product they're going to produce to mm-hmm. demonstrate their learning on a proficiency target. Um, I was thinking I'm reading Emily and Stan, uh, Emily Rinkema and Stan Williams' book on um, the standards-based classroom, mm-hmm. and one of the things they say is that they went to a conference where somebody pointed out that not all group sizes needed to be the same, and what a revelation that was, but I think that's a revelation for many of us, that you can have kids working solo, in pairs, and in small groups within the same classroom. Absolutely. It's not a one-size-fits-all model. Absolutely. But if you'd asked me as a teacher, I would have been like, well, I want six groups, so I'm going to divide the class. We're going to count off. Either we're going to count off or we're going to, or I'm going to make groups specifically so that I separate people who need to be separated. I remember I had a really powerful experience in student teaching um, where I decided, I was working with a small group of students and they needed to work within groups within that small group. And a group said, we're friends, but we, re- we work well together. Can we try it? And I remember being terrified, right? Friends can't work well together. They're never going to get anything done. And then um, they did. And what they produced was one of the most beautiful products that I've ever seen. And it came with a thank you note after saying, thank you for trusting us. Thank you for allowing us to work together because we knew we had the potential to do it, but nobody had ever given us the chance before. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, 
The other way that Miner does this is through class meetings, and he has a whole section on how to um, show kids you hear them through mm -hmm. class meetings and co-construct those class meetings so that kids, um, so it's a gradual release of power and control so students have more and more of a role in that. And I know many of our Vermont educators have town meetings or class meetings that allow for that as well, and I applaud them. And yes. if you don't... We'll try to embed some examples. Right. And in what's interesting about Miner's model that I had never thought about before is he talks about those meetings being like 15 minutes in length, right? He's like, look, approach sort of one issue, one thing that's happening in your classroom and take that, you know, 10, 15 minutes of time to really work with your learners about um, approaching it, about how you can rethink it, get their feedback, get their perspective. And then you can go right back into sort of the, the curricular learning that's happening in the classroom. And I point that out only because I wonder if sometimes teachers and schools hesitate to use a town meeting model or something of that sort because, they, because of the pressure sometimes that's felt around time and the value of time and not wanting to take away from the curriculum. But minors found a way to do it in a way that accomplishes the goal of including student voice and student decision-making yeah. in a way that's doable in, in any curriculum. He also really talks about scaffolding. So yes. ta starting with something really low stakes at the very beginning of the year, in his case, it's eating salads something yes. in the lunchroom. And then he moves on to, like, um, the kids kept uh, encouraging him to um, see The Rock in, in a movie. And so he watched a movie and he engages in a conversation about that. But then he moves on to, like, negotiating conflict. And it's actually based on a book that they're reading. So it's, it's you start low stakes at the beginning of the year. And then you can talk about things that are curricular or harder or more intense as you've built the capacity to share that space together. Absolutely, and I love his salad example because he talks about the fact that, that his, you know, wanting students to eat, um, think more um, nutritiously about what they're selecting and choosing to eat in the cafeteria, that it doesn't need to be, again, time happening during the day, but his salad conversations happen while he's walking to lunch with students. So I, what I, I love, again, about his work is that he views every single minute he has with students as a way of building, of listening to them, listening to them, building their confidence, building their strategies and their, um, their strategies of being able to advocate for themselves and think deeply about um, the little things in their lives, such as what they eat in the cafeteria and the big things in their lives, such as how they manage peer conflict, which we know is, is a critical part of middle school. And it's not him preaching at them about the no. silence. And it reminds me of my friend Mark, Mike Martin often says, the one doing the talking is doing the learning. Yes. And so by listening to students, he's also providing an opportunity for them to do the learning. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. I've used, um, on page 94, he has another, these graphic organizers are so fabulous, and we're going to link them in because they're available, um, we're going to link them into the transcript because they're available on, on the publisher's website. And the one on 94 is a blueprint for shifting your mindset from punitive to proactive. And I think it's particularly a powerful tool to use with students. 
Um, it asks us to think about what we need to be successful, how the teacher can help with that, and how students can help with that. Absolutely. I was, um, I'm, my, I'm teaching a methods class right now for middle and high school pre-service teachers. It's their first methods class that they've had. And we're, right now, we're looking at um, a, a reading on classroom management from Rethinking Schools. It's actually titled Reframing Classroom Management. And its whole premise is on this notion of um, our goal as teachers should not be to manage, right? It goes back to um, our conversation about minor and power, right? If we're managing, it assumes that we are in positions of power and our students have don't have voice or choice. And I've actually been thinking about using this graphic organizer in conjunction with that reading with my students, because to me, that's what it's all about, right? Mo moving from punitive to proactive. And I think a lot of the ways that we traditionally define classroom management um, leads to sort of punitive um, consequences for students. And so I thought about using this with my students um, to model it for them. Um, we will, it starts with, we will be successful this week um, if we. And I feel like you could do that with any community. I feel like I could do it with some of the adult groups that I work with, right? Our work will be productive this week if we. Um, and to get us to think about collaboratively, um, we can help each other do that by you know, et cetera. So yeah, this is one that I flagged as well as something I wanna, I wanna use. Well, and it seems so important because it's about not compliance, but community. Absolutely. And it gets us to think beyond our outdated notions of what a successful classroom looks like. And that feels really important to me because actually some of the best, most rich and rewarding um, learning environments I've been in aren't pretty. Like, right. It's a little messy, it's a little loud, it feels a little chaotic, and I have to do that internal adjustment of like, okay, pay attention, what's really go look beneath the surface, what's really going on here? And so Miner says something that is just like, I, I want to put it on big banners uh, and, and parade it around schools. He says, I am not interested in raising a nation of well-behaved children. I love that one too. And just this idea that um, our job is to help kids learn. It's not to keep them in neat rows, raising their hands all the time. And so I think that sometimes we get in our own way around thinking about what learning looks like. And this graphic organizer asks us to really deeply think about what does success look like and let go of the rest, right? Like if we really focus in on what successful learning looks like in the context of this classroom, with these kids and this learning target, and we're specific about that, it might be noisy. Right? Absolutely. One of when we were talking about this this article, one of my students said, "If we focus on the, if I focus on the noise level in my classroom, I'm going to be ignoring my students who grew up in environments where noisy is normal, yeah. where noisy is accepted, where noisy is just the way that they." Um, present themselves and that's huge for me around this question of equity right when we think about anything to do with compliance it assumes that someone else's way of being is better than somebody else's than someone you know than another individual's yes 
He also really asks teachers to be thoughtful about how they how they deal with disruptive behaviors. And he has on page 99 this gorgeous, I don't know, this beautifully thoughtful way of thinking about what do I say with my voice and what I say with my body. And um, another great moment of learning that I wish I had had sooner in my own teaching career was realizing that I could have a script that allowed me to interrupt behaviors that were getting in the way of learning without um, without having to rationalize it to my students. Like it could be quick and simple. I could use my whole body, my body language, my vocabulary, my short sentences to get the point across without um, sort of laying a guilt trip on kids, making them feel bad, without um, negotiating with them, that I could just be really plain about it. And he asks us really to think about that. Um, what do you say? What does your body, your voice say, and what does your body say? And um, it reminds me. And 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 thinking about that in advance allows you to stay strengths based and positive. And so, um, recently I was talking to Christy Nold, and she brought up something that Alex Chevron, a phrase that Alex Chevron Vinay uses, which is um, uh, unconditional positive regard that I can develop a script that allows me to have unconditional positive regard for my students so that our relationship is intact, but still allows me to disrupt behaviors that are out of place in the classroom. I love that notion. Right? Yeah, absolutely. It's so powerful to think about in terms of, um, you know, as, as educators, we make so many in the moment decisions. And every single one of those decisions has an impact on at least one other human being. So this notion that we can sort of find a way to, to mitigate, or not even mitigate, because those consequences will still be there, but to think ahead of time about what our responses might be, could be, should be in any given situation certainly would make me feel better about going back and managing a middle school classroom again in terms of um, just gives you that reflection time to think in advance of the power that your actions have on students and so really thinking about those consequences in advance. Yes, when I was a school librarian, um, libraries are a free and nowadays noisy place Mm -hmm. and um, I worked in a, um, well, I've worked K to 12, but in my 7 to 12 library, occasionally, as one might imagine, a kid might use a naughty word. And I, I really have zero tolerance for naughty words for a lot of reasons that I won't go into here, but I found that the quickest, easiest way to deal with it was just to say, language, or watch your language. If I said more words than that, they, I just sounded like a teacher from Charlie Brown anyway, blah, 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 blah. And that was just the quickest, easiest way to deal with it. And I, I think that often, quick and easy, firm and kind is the way to go. Absolutely. And, and it sort of opens the door. I found, um, in, for me, in my classroom, I think we all have those things, right, that um, we focus on as teachers. And for me, it was about, um, it, was, it was language that... Um, those comments, he's so gay, or um, use of the uh, the word retard, those sorts of things. And for me, in my classroom, those were the things that just shook, shook my whole body. And so 
um, what I found was the same exact thing that you did. Sort of that one word of language. What I found is my students started saying it to each other outside of our classroom space. And I don't think that would be the case if, as you said, it became this big back and forth conversation, then I think it would become a power struggle as opposed to just a norm, Yes. right? Absolutely. If I said something like that, I would want to be called out on yes, it. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I would, want it to, I would want to be reminded to be my best self. Right, right, without yeah. being embarrassed, right? Yeah. Without becoming this big production of um, forgetting that you're a human being who makes mistakes. Yes. Um, or who, you know, in some of my students' cases, they had never even heard why those terms were problematic, yeah. right? But just allowing, using that, using one word allows them to bring up the conversation. Why? Versus me going at them. Preaching. Right, exactly. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, in this, this book is not very long. Only it's less than 150 pages, and the last thing that um, Cornelius Minor really addresses, I think, so beautifully is um, curriculum, and so I want to talk a little bit about that before I ask my next question. Um, he says, "On um, my job as a teacher is not to teach the curriculum or even to just teach the students. It is to seek to understand my kids as completely as possible, so that I can purposefully bend." curriculum to meet them. Um, he goes on to think about harmful curriculum is a curriculum that doesn't see students, that isn't flexible, and it doesn't grow him as a teacher. Um, but that powerful curriculum helps to, um, how does he say it? He says something really interesting, um, that it's relational and it allows uh, you to relate to kids and their lives. And, um, and allows them to, to grow into what the future holds for them. So I wonder if you wanted to think about his conception of curriculum and its purpose and how to use it for good and not harm. Absolutely. One of my, my favorite things that you sort of allude to is his notion of curriculum should benefit our students now, yes. in the moment. And our answer to why am I doing this should never or should I think should never be because you're going to need to use this in the future um, to me we are educating our students uh, at a point where they are who they are in that moment and if our curriculum you know as he says doesn't bend to meet them who they are in that moment then I question its effectiveness um, I know in my own learning as an adult. I don't choose learning opportunities that don't feel relevant to what I am thinking about in the moment or what I'm focusing on or what I need. I very rarely, you know, choose a professional development opportunity by, I'm gonna need that one day in my life or in my career. And I think as, as educators, we owe it to our students to approach it in that same way. Um, and I, and I appreciate that minor, again, he creates, provides some graphic organizers for teachers to say, if you are given a mandated curriculum, here are some questions to ask yourself about how you can bend that curriculum to be 
appropriate for your students. I feel like in many ways we're lucky in Vermont because we have fewer schools providing us with scripted curriculum and that sort of thing. But there are um, constraints in our work as teachers. And he not only gives us permission to um, subvert those, but he gives really some concrete strategies for how to do that. Yeah. He says um, pretty plainly, people want to learn more about the things they care about. Mm -hmm. So it behooves us to help our students connect to what we're trying to teach them and care about it, right? Through relevance or um, by making it relevant to their lives as they are, which reminds me of John Dewey and Mm -hmm. um, uh, education is a preparation for life, but life itself. Um, But it also just reminds me of how we can situate content and skills in ways that feel real to students. Absolutely. It goes back to the the choice and and voice and allowing them to advocate for approaching the proficiencies or learning outcomes, learning targets, however you're framing your curriculum. But it allows students to say, I have a way that I can demonstrate this. I have a topic or a theme that I want to spend some time with that allows me to get at that. And I know you know, I know sometimes uh, teachers that I've worked with in the past, and I think about my own practice, sometimes we try that and it doesn't work, right? And, I, and what I have to keep reminding myself and reminding the educators that I work with is it doesn't work because it's not, a, because it's not an effective strategy. It doesn't work because our students haven't been brought up in an educational system that gives them that power and that voice. So the, you know, the first few times we throw that out to them, it's no wonder that it's, it's not going to be an effective, right? So it, again, it goes back to his, this notion that he talks about a lot that we all know is, you know, comes from Vygotsky of scaffolding, right? We have to scaffold choice as well sometimes for students. Um, yeah, and acknowledge that in one classroom of individuals, we may have some students who are ready for that sort of full-on self-directed choice. And we have other students who need us to scaffold it for them. So you're making me realize that these strategies are meant to be used in concert with each other, that part of knowing how to make the curriculum bend to the needs of our students is to know our students well. Absolutely, yeah back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. This is such a powerful book, I think, for the individual practitioner in the classroom, right? This book can help you um, really change the systems in your own classroom to better meet the needs of your students so that your teaching is more equitable. Um, I guess my question for you is, how do these ideas apply to Vermont's specific educational landscape um, in where we have um, this move towards personalization and flexible pathways and proficiency-based education and personalized learning plans? To me, the, the, the most significant point of connection is none of those elements of personalized learning, proficiency-based assessment, um, personalized learning plans, flexible pathways, None of that works without first listening to students. We can't, we can create as many flexible pathways as we want, but if they are not the flexible pathways that our students want, then 
we're not changing the system at all. But in no way are we um, making an educational system in general that listens to our students any more than the old system did. So to me, that's the bottom line around all of this is listening to our students. Mm. Yes. I think this book is really powerful for classroom use. I can't, I, I just would love to see a whole school using these strategies because I think the students in that school would be so empowered um, in their own learning. It would just be such an amazing thing. I think this could be a great all school read um, because if everyone was applying these principles, it would make such a difference for students. Absolutely. And, you know, as a pre-service or as a teacher educator, that is my sort of my biggest fear when I send my students out into the field is, you know, when we we ground our teacher education program in equity and then oftentimes students go into the field and it's not because educators don't want to be equitable or don't find it important but because we don't necessarily have the systems in our schools that support teachers work towards being equitable and absolutely i think if we did more as whole school communities around reading texts around equity around engaging in conversations around sharing what we know about our students and not just and i don't just mean sharing what we know about who our students are in our classrooms but what we learn and know about our students as as human beings um and grounding our work into the values that they and their parents bring into the community. Um, I don't know that we can make the changes that we need for our systems to, to, I guess, to transform. We can change, but we can't transform. How can we, I think one of the things we need to do is shift those conversations so that when we're having those conversations about our students, we're really shining a bright spotlight on their talents mm-hmm. and their strengths and the the shiny brilliance that every kid has. Absolutely. And sometimes it, we have to dig for that shiny brilliance, right? Sometimes it's not they've they've locked it off a little bit or made it hard to see because of their experiences in the world, but every kid has that as their birthright gift. Absolutely. A lot of, you know, one of the questions that I I like to pose to educators is to think about the various identities that we hold as human beings, right? Whether that is um, around gender, around race, around sexuality, around um, socioeconomic class, whatever those pieces are, and to really think in your school environment, which of these identity, which components of these, each of these identities are privileged? And which components of these identities are not? And how does that make you rethink the way that you approach not just your individual students, but the larger um, policies that exist in your school, the way that you talk about kids, the way that you, um, what you value as a community, sort of what, what your culture values. It can be so hard to interrupt those implicit bias biases that we hold, and in fact, the first step is just being able to see them. Um, I became aware a couple years ago of the bias I have around language, that um, I really held this belief, 
hold it still in some ways that people who speak standard American English are smarter. And that's simply not the case. There's no difference in uh, size or ability of the brain if you speak standard American English versus a vernacular. And um, so I have to constantly sort of remind myself of that internally in my brain. Like I have to interrupt those judgments that I make. And it's it's really challenging. And the first step was just noticing, just seeing, having that pointed out to me, by me, really. (laughs) And then the second step is to start to interrupt that so I can see... Um, the content of what somebody's saying and not judge it by um, my own notions of grammar and syntax and sentence structure. Absolutely. And, and I can give you an example from my own practice as well. For me, I had to reframe what it looks like to be um, engaged and, and, and to be engaged in education. And, and I'm coming at that from the perspective of thinking about my own students and Um, thinking about the fact that um, being late to class doesn't necessarily mean you don't want to be there, right? Or you haven't tried really hard to get there. Or um, placing significance on um, family events over um, being present in a class, in a classroom setting or an educational setting and, and really having to check my own biases about growing up in a family where school came first and if something was going on at home, we dealt with that later. And, and that's, not a, that's not a norm that exists in every household. For some households, the necessity is what happens in our home has to be figured out first. And it doesn't mean um, my students who are coming from homes that come from that orientation don't value their education just as much as as I do or my parents did. It just means that they um, they need to step back for a moment and then step into it when they have the capacity to do it because it's so important to them that they need to be wholly present. Yeah. I so appreciate you being vulnerable enough to spell that out, and I think that education, being an educator is vulnerable work. Mm -hmm. And one of the most vulnerable things we can do is uh, check our own biases and assumptions, really look, dig in there, and it can be uncomfortable, but it also can be the most rewarding work you do. It can transform your practice in powerful ways. For sure, and I think it goes back to, again, the listening to students, Mm -hmm. because my students, I think all of our students are sending us messages about what our biases and our stereotypes and and things are. We just need to watch them and listen to them and they'll help guide us in terms of figuring out what those are. Center students, you heard it here. Kathleen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about this fabulous book, We Got This, Equity, Access, and the Quest to Be Who Our Students Need Us to Be. Thank you, it's been fun. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Kathleen Rinegar for appearing on the show and talking with me about We Got This. If you're looking for a copy of We Got This, check your local library. Special thanks to our fabulous audio engineer, Audrey Holman, to find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. 
This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.